The New York Times, yeah. this past Sunday, there was an article about the first black punk rock group called Death in the 70s, and they found these old recordings. I was just trying to, I was trying to create an idea of how to expand rock. My name is Henry Rollins. Henry, I think I know you. Oh, I see. You're a character now. I, well, I just do whatever I feel. You are gonna make me scream like a white lady. <laughs> Woo! Shut up. Hello and welcome to Deep Tracks in Rock History, the show that tells all of rock music's history from its earliest roots to its latest developments. I am your splendificous host, Doug. Come with me if you want to live, McCullough. Last episode, we left off with Elvis having had phenomenal success with That's Alright Mama and Blue Moon of Kentucky. After teaming up with guitarist Scotty Moore and bassist Bill Black, they quickly released a few more hits through Sun Records after that. And then soon after that, uh, radio DJ Bob Neal had taken over as the group's manager. And then at the very end of last episode, uh, if you remember, they had just started meeting with um, the Baron of the Box Office, Oscar Davis, who would ostensibly help them get to the next level um, and allow Bob Neal to be able to book them into better venues and give them more exposure. More importantly, though, it was through this meeting with Oscar Davis that Elvis would first come into contact with the man who would arguably be the most impactful person he would ever meet, Colonel Tom Parker. And that is where we paused in our narrative of Elvis's story. And we are now dedicating this episode to a side quest, if you will, delving into the story of Colonel Parker himself. So here we go. The early life and rise of Colonel Tom Parker. Colonel Parker was his name. He helped create Elvis's fame. Making lots of money was his game. If you haven't heard of him, then that's no shame. Because that's who we're about to talk about right now. The man, the myth, the legend, Colonel Tom Parker. My primary source for my material on The Colonel comes from Alana Nash's book, The Colonel. Not to be confused with the somewhat similarly named book Elvis and the Colonel by Greg McDonald and Marshall Terrell. Nash's book is just, you know, the Colonel. And Nash's book is purported by some to be the source for Baz Luhrmann's film Elvis. However, Luhrmann um, claims that he never actually read the book himself and said that he was simply presented with some notes from researchers who had read it. So while the book could be said to be a contributor to the movie, it can't be said that the movie was actually based on it. Um, but anyway, I am specifically highlighting Nash's book right now because I want to point out how she begins it. The preface in her book starts with the public viewing of Elvis's body in 1977, which she herself attended. She describes her experience there, seeing the singer's body in the casket and even sneaking back in line for a second look, only to be recognized by a security guard and given the boot because everyone was only allowed one look. But then, after sharing her personal experience there, she closes the preface with this quote from Larry Geller, who was a member of Elvis's entourage and who had actually styled the singer's hair for his funeral. Larry Geller said, It's so strange. We all wore our black suits. But Colonel Tom Parker wore a Hawaiian floral shirt and a baseball cap and never walked up to the casket. Very strange. Very strange indeed. Then she transitions to the book's introduction, which opens in the middle of an interview that she had with Colonel Parker in 1994, 
in which he is excitedly recounting the news about O.J. Simpson's infamous Bronco run, which had happened the day before. For me, reading this part of the book was such a strange confluence of completely compartmentalized epochs in my brain. For me, Parker is, you know, from the bygone era of early rock, and O.J. Simpson's police chase and subsequent trial are lodged firmly in my high school memories. So it was kind of a trip to, to imagine the colonel, who you know, the man who is credited with both inventing and destroying Elvis Presley, you know, sitting in his living room cheering O.J. on as he ran from the cops. But then Nash funnels her narrative into Parker's own funeral in 1997, where she shares a sort of mini obituary through the lens of his friends and loved ones in attendance at that funeral which I will quote here. The 160 mourners who filtered into Ballroom D of the Las Vegas Hilton saw him as one of the last giants and true iconoclasts of the century, a penniless immigrant who slipped into the country, befriended U.S. presidents and corporate CEOs, created both an icon and a $4 billion business, and never let any of it get in the way of what mattered most, playing the game. Through it all, he remained as individualistic, as shrewd, rude, crude and fun-loving as ever. At his death, he still delighted in practicing what he called the art of snowing, the exquisitely performed act of separating people from their money, leaving them with a smile on their face and melting away before they realized what had taken place. To demonstrate some of what she's talking about there with the shrewd, rude, crude and fun-loving, I'll share an anecdote that Eddie Murphy shared about Parker in 1989. Colonel Tom Parker rubbed my head in Vegas. A couple times he set me up in the Elvis Presley suite on top of the Hilton, and I would go play Elvis for a week. One night, we were at the crap table together, and he rubbed my head for luck. I wanted to punch him in the face. But this guy is like 80 years old, too old to be taught the limits of racism. He probably doesn't realize how horrible a thing that was to do. Anyway, that that story kind of captures some of Tom Parker's essence right there, plus a little bit of Eddie Murphy's as well, incidentally. But, you know, just the the whole, like, you know, old guy rubbing the head of a black man for luck um, and just kind of being so cavalier about it. Um, But anyway, going back to Nash, uh, she sets up the premise of her book with these poignant paragraphs. For all the 20 years that Parker outlasted his greatest discovery, he would also have to live with the allegations that he had destroyed him, stifling his artistry in third-rate Hollywood formula pictures, suffocating his ambition in 837 Vegas performances from 1969 to 1976, and killing his will to live by refusing to challenge him in meaningful ways a European tour, a dramatic film role to reclaim his self-respect, a crack at a memorable song. Whether regarded as a meretricious and evil confidence man or as a brilliant marketer and strategist, as remarkable as the star he managed, no figure in all of entertainment is more controversial, colorful, or larger than life than Tom Parker. So the question that remains for many people is, would Elvis have made it as big as he did without Tom Parker? The Colonel's critics like to think that he would have and see the moment that Elvis met the Colonel as being akin to when Anakin Skywalker first met Chancellor Palpatine. Only through me can you achieve a power greater than any Jedi. You know, i.e. the Chosen One had just met the very figure that would exploit and destroy him. Um, And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Parker simply saw Elvis as a means to an end. As Nash points out in her book, the Colonel often referred to Elvis in carnival terms as my attraction. But then you get differing accounts about the relationship, such as how Priscilla Presley recounted it in her recent interview with Piers Morgan. Rather than the devious exploiter, she painted Parker as more of your run-of-the-mill talent manager, which entails a standard amount of friction. Almost every performing artist out there clashes with their manager. It's by no means unique to Elvis and the Colonel. So when Piers Morgan asked Priscilla how accurate Tom Hanks' portrayal of the Colonel was in the movie, 
Elvis, she responded with, uh, Somewhat, but um, Colonel, I never had a problem with Colonel. Colonel was different, not being Colonel. Uh, we would go to his home in Palm Springs and visit him. Um, Elvis would, wanted, to, wanted to see uh, Colonel and they'd talk a little bit business and I'd be stuck with his wife and didn't know what to say. But um, <laughs> there were times when Elvis and him would talk and they'd get along. It's just when Colonel Parker interfered with Elvis's choice of songs, yeah. um, that's when it really, that's part of the movie is when he's upset because Colonel was, when he got in Elvis's way, that's when Elvis would go to so in her brief account, Parker is not exactly the cigar-chomping puppet master in Baz Luhrmann's telling, but more like the proverbial helicopter parent, you know, with creative differences. But again, as she points out, the two men often went off to discuss business while they left the wives to talk among themselves, so it's hard to say how reliable her perspective is. But anyway, that's enough speculation for now. It's time that we dive into the Colonel's story, after which we will reconnect with Elvis, and then in the end you can be the judge about whether the Colonel was your standard, occasionally meddlesome manager, or the mustache-twirling, finger-steepled, dark overlord mastermind draining his star attraction like a parasite slowly killing its host. <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker was born in Breda, Holland, to a family with aristocratic roots in their distant past, the Van Kauks. And, uh, you know, in case you're curious, Kauk is spelled K-U-J-I-K. So um, <laughs> doesn't look at all like how it sounds. Um, now, the thing to remember as I'm telling this story is that none of this was known about the colonel publicly until 1982 when he was um, actually dealing with some legal troubles and it came out uh, in this you know, very public trial. Um, in fact, his own stepson, who passed away in 1978, died without ever knowing that the guy who had been helping to raise him since age 10 wasn't Thomas Andrew Parker from Huntington, West Virginia, but was really a Dutch immigrant named Andreas Cornelis Van Kauk. Anyway, getting back to his origin story, little Andreas, or Andre as his family called him, was born to Adam Van Kauk, who had served a 12-year term in an artillery unit in the Dutch army and during which discovered he had an affinity for tending horses. Thus, after his discharge in 1899, he stuck around in Breda and took a job as a livery man for a freight and package handling firm which actually Nash describes it as the UPS of Holland. Adam was the kind of guy who loved to wear a uniform. He'd taken pride in his military uniform and then subsequently took great pride in wearing the uniform of his employer. And I should point out, you know, I mean, calling it the UPS of, of Holland, you know, we almost kind of picture a guy, you know, wearing all brown with short shorts and tall socks. But th these uniforms, if you see the pictures, um, it, it kind of looked more like a military uniform. So for Adam, it was very natural to go from wearing a legit military uniform to this new uniform for this, you know, quote unquote, UPS of Holland. So I'm sharing this, all this detail with you about uniforms um, because it just tells us a lot about Adam's personality, which is important to understand when we see him inevitably clash with his son, Andreas. In fact, Nash describes him as rigid, disciplined, and unyielding. Nevertheless, while in his military service, he began dating and eventually married a woman named Maria Elizabeth, whose maiden surname of Ponzi seemed oddly prophetic of her future son. Now, Maria was 10 years younger than Adam, and she was the daughter of freewheeling merchants, as Nash describes them. They were what were called parlwinkers, 
and I'm not totally sure if I'm saying that right, but um, these these Parl Vinkers, they were essentially floating peddlers who traveled Holland's intricate river and canal system, selling and trading household goods from their barge to other travelers on the water. Uh, and Maria's parents actually left their life in the water to open a small shop called A Thousand and One Things Bazaar. Um, but one of the ways in which they made money was to collect discarded Bibles, fashion them with new covers made of black crepe paper, and then peddled these to the area churches, many of which never guessed that the books inside were the very ones they had earlier discarded. Nash also includes this tawdry bit of information that Maria and Adam's firstborn was conceived in December of 1899, while they were married the following May of 1900, when she was very clearly beginning to show in her pregnancy. And then four months after that, their oldest son, Joseph, was born on September 19th. So, of course, being Catholics in an environment known for its strict Catholicism, Nash asserts that their marriage was more a result of duty, guilt, and a sense of propriety as much as anything else. Um, the couple did have five more kids, though, uh, two of which uh, passed away in infancy before their seventh and youngest child was born in June of 1909. They named him Andreas after Adam's father. Um, it was actually his mother's side of the family, however, the Ponzi side, with which young Andreas would most identify. He became particularly close with his grandpa, Ponzi, who would tell the boy stories of independence and the nomadic lifestyle which all, of course, captured Andreas's young imagination uh, much more than his father's stern sense of order, discipline, and obligation. This stern sense of order, discipline, and obligation was a two-edged sword. Despite being diagnosed with diabetes in 1915 and his kidneys beginning to fail, Adam maintained his dedication to supporting his family, never missing work, but he also projected his sense of duty onto his children. As Nash shares it, Adam rose each morning at 5 o'clock, readied the horses, and delivered packages until 7 or 8 a.m. when he returned home for breakfast. If he found the boy still in bed at that late hour, and Andreas often was, he reddened in the face, yanked the child from his sleep, and beat him with a stick for bad children that he kept behind the door. So really, the only thing that Andreas inherited from his father was a love and affinity for horses. Other than that... The kid was a Ponzi through and through. For example, by age seven, Andreas was already sneaking off on his own to explore Breda's streets and alleyways. From a young age, Andreas was showing up at local fairs to, as Nash describes it, hustle a few guilders whenever the opportunity arose, mostly trading or running errands. By age nine, he had gotten himself hired on as a carny, actually. And from there, he only worked his way up the chain, first as a circus water boy, then as a feeder and caretaker of animals. And eventually, when he got a little older, as a carnival barker. <laughs> Parker the barker. Parker reveled in learning the trade of the hustle, in which the carnival provided plenty of schooling. Some of his time as a carnival barker was working for a gypsy woman who told fortunes. She charged 50 cents per fortune, and anyone that young Andreas got to come into her tent, he got to keep 25 cents. So eventually, of course, he started telling fortunes himself, which meant he got to keep the whole 50 cents all on his own. However, lest anyone thinks of him purely in terms of being a heartless con man, Nash shares this somewhat bizarre ruse that Andreas concocted as a kid. So each Friday, a farmer from another village would come to the Van Kauks to collect horse manure from their stable to use as fertilizer. And in exchange, he would bring fresh straw and hay for their horses. The farmer would leave his bike parked near the stables, which just that detail right there that he used a bike has me wondering... How did he transport the manure? Like, did he just plop it in a basket on his handlebars? Was there a little trailer attached to it? However he did it, 
That must have been a smelly ride. Bernard! I hate Bernard! Anyway, one of these Fridays, the farmer returned to his bike only to find it missing. As it turned out, Andres had taken it to ride to the home of his friend, whose name I can't pronounce, so I'll just call him The Friend. And this is where Andreas roped in The Friend to participate in his elaborate scheme. The two boys rode the bike in tandem to the home of yet another farmer who sold fruits and vegetables, and it was there that Andreas pretended he was from England, even though he didn't speak English, uh, in fact, even concocting a foreign language out of, you know, bits of English and French so that uh, this farmer would give the boys bags full of apples as a token of hospitality, you know, for these young foreigners. Johnny, where in the hell are you from anyway? The Upper West Side. And then after the trick worked, uh, then they rode to a nearby orphanage and they distributed the apples to the orphans. So it's a very Robin Hood kind of kind of vibe to it and then the leftover apples andreas brought home to his mom and the farmer got his bike back so a victimless crime right um but adam uh, upon learning about what his son had done was furious and he sent him to bed without dinner maria on the other hand found the whole escapade uh rather sweet and she snuck in a sandwich to her son while he languished in solitary confinement in his bedroom um as a local villager said of andreas who knew him as a kid he would scheme but always in a good way some people might have thought he was a terrible guy, but others had to laugh because they had fun with him. So it's kind of a complicated picture, isn't it? In his time working on carnivals and the circus, uh, Andreas also learned how to train animals. And this is where he combined it with the aforementioned affinity for horses and began training his father's own horses in their family stable. Loving to entertain his siblings, Andreas spent weeks training his dad's horses for a special show he would put on for his brothers and sisters. And then during the performance itself, while Andreas' siblings sat on blankets watching him lead the horses through a series of tricks and maneuvers, just as he was bringing the beasts to a kneel and curtsy farewell, his father burst through the big double doors with a force that froze every child in their place. He stood with his hands behind him on the latch, his face twisted in anger. These horses were not for play. The children were not even allowed in the stables except to help feed the horses. These were Adam's work horses. These were the family's livelihood. If his employer heard of this, Adam would be out of a job. Plus, in his mind, Andreas' stunt had endangered both the animals and the other children. So, in a lifetime of clashes between father and son... This one would stand out supreme, dipping once again into Nash's telling of it. With all the children looking on, Adam methodically unbuckled and removed his thick harness belt, then commanded his wayward son to bend over a chair. Andreas van Kalk would get the whipping of his life, one that would surely knock this circus folly out of him for good. The story of Adam's beating the boy while the others watched would go a long way to explain the origin of a key trait that showed up in Andreas' personality in adulthood his need to humiliate others around him, especially those in subordinate positions. So by the time Andreas had hit his teen years, his father's health had declined even more, becoming increasingly complicated because of the onset of rheumatism, among other things. Andreas helped support the family by finding work wherever he could, though he found most jobs absolutely menial and boring, and of course still preferred uh, you know, seeking out carnival work anytime he could get it. Among these was the opportunity to work at a dog show that had been booked for a multi-day engagement at Breda's Concordia Theater. The show featured hounds who hopped like rabbits, um, poodles who danced the can-can line on two legs. It was right up his alley, allowing Andreas to learn more about training animals, particularly dogs. And that is a detail you should remember in our story. He continued bouncing from job to job, sort of living at home and sort of not... Um, becoming increasingly estranged from his father, though retaining a strong relationship with his mother and siblings. Around the time that he turned 16, he uh, moved to Rotterdam to live with his uncle, Jan Ponzi, and his family. 
And here he continued to work various jobs here and there, never sticking with any one thing for very long. Uh, his father eventually passed away not long after his move, which in turn necessitated uh, Maria and the remaining children to move into a smaller place that they could afford. Andreas visited them occasionally, but never moved back home to help care for his widowed mother. At the age of 17, by some undetermined means and with almost no warning to his family of his intentions to do so, Andreas finagled his way to the U.S. on the Holland-America line and was living with a well-to-do Dutch family in Hoboken, learning English and enjoying his newfound freedom. His new adopted family wanted to write back home to his actual family to let them know how he was doing. Um, Andreas kind of resisted this at first and then acquiesced to give them his uncle's address, but never his mother's. The two families began a correspondence in which, by remote and secondhand means, Andreas's mother and siblings were able to hear about his new life in America. However, when there was talk of having uh, his sister, Marie Wilhelmina, join him in America, Andreas disappeared, leaving his surrogate family with no note, no warning, nothing. He was just gone. In this next phase of his life, he spent sort of just bouncing around, making connections and traveling shows and entertainment. In short, he was basically living the life of a hobo. And I don't mean that in the modern slang usage, but like in the specific sense of the nomadic figures of the early 1900s, you know, jumping onto trains, carrying knapsacks on a stick over their shoulders and eating a boiled meat stew known as Slumgullion. Mmm, tasty. This period of his life, in fact, would remain with them until the end of his days. Uh, in the 1950s, for example, when Elvis had just expanded his career into Hollywood, Parker would talk the studio commissary into letting him make up dozens of sandwiches, which he would then take to some of the known hobo hangouts at the Los Angeles train stops. Anyway, after being away from his homeland for about a year and a half, he randomly showed up back in Holland for his mom's birthday on September 2nd, 1927. It's unknown how he was able to afford passage back or if his passage back had even been voluntary or if he'd been caught and deported. Uh, either way, his timing was perfect. He strode through the door around 9 p.m., right when the family was all gathered around with you know, presents in hand, dressed in a suit and a long striped tie. He was 18 years old, and you know, you'd think he would have stories to tell. But surprisingly enough, no matter how much anyone asked him, he would not tell them. For whatever reason, he refused to share with his family what he had been doing in America all that time. Which is a little weird, but, you know, that's Parker right there. He was coy to the point of confounding. He was at home in Breda for about a month before moving back to the port city of Rotterdam, though this time he didn't stay with his uncle. This time he took a job with a shipping company loading and unloading barges on the waterfront and stayed in one of the company's employee hostels on the top floor of the office. And this is where I'll quote Nash again as she brings up something um, that she mentions numerous times throughout the book, namely that Parker never drank and he was also not known to show any interest in women, or men either, for that matter. He appeared to be asexual, and many people speculate that his marriage later in life was more to have someone to take care of him than anything else. Anyway, this is where I'll draw directly from Nash's narrative. At the hostel, he stored his good clothes and a few personal belongings in a locked trunk, which he positioned near his cot. Andreas had no trust for the sailors, who knew better than to invite him for a night of drinking or offer to introduce him to a girl. Now, at nearly twenty, he had turned into a good-looking, bright-eyed lad with a slim face and an impish smile. The fact that he'd rather take long walks by himself than spend the evening in the company of a pretty girl was the subject of comment among the others. And then, one day, he just never showed up to work. He just completely disappeared. After a couple months, the shipping company that he worked for shipped his stuff back to his mom in Breda, and when it arrived, they found it had three of his treasured suits, a rosary, a Bible, his identification papers, 
and a small purse containing what appeared to be his savings. He had taken nothing with him but two shirts and two pairs of undershorts. Parker may not have loved alcohol and women, but he certainly loved dressing up and money. So the fact that he left his suits and his savings behind only added to the mystery. And to make it even more mysterious, the family received a message sometime later saying that their son slash brother was alive and had gone away. And the note was signed Andre slash Tom Parker. His sister, who believed he chose the name Tom Parker as an homage to a stowaway who was thrown overboard, said, He just changed identity. He wanted to remain unknown. More letters would arrive here and there, and eventually he dropped the Andre altogether and just signed them only Tom Parker. He also never included a return address. There was just enough information to let the family know he was all right, but that was it. He even sent photos on a few occasions. But rather than giving the family any information, these letters and photos only had his family asking more questions. And as Nash points out, it would be another 31 years before they would receive any answers. This is where his story, as one would expect, gets a little dicey in the telling. Nash shares an account of a guy named Byron Raphael, with whom Parker grew close in the late 1950s and had even told him he thought of Byron as an adopted son, who claims that during a 2,000-mile road trip, Parker parted the curtain a bit and confided in him one of his closest secrets. So now quoting Byron, We were driving through Hobbs, New Mexico, and we stopped at this little motel. There were very few rooms available, so I had to share a room with him that night. He started out by telling me about how he was made a colonel by the governor of Louisiana. And then he said, Where do you think I was born? I said, Well, I guess Tennessee. And he just told me the story. He said he made a deal with somebody to come over, and he worked in the kitchen of the ship as a dishwasher, I think. The way he arranged it, he was supposed to stay 60 days and then go back. And he said they were going to give him a paycheck when he landed, but he didn't want to get the check because he felt they might find out where he was. So he never picked it up, even though he had no money. All he wanted to do was to get to this country and disappear into the heartland to start working in carnivals. Then Byron shares this important part of his story that gives us even more of a glimpse into Parker's motives. That's when he told me the rest of the story, how fearful he was that he might be deported, or if he ever left the country that he might not be able to get back in. He said, You know, Byron, we're never going to be able to take Elvis abroad to do personal appearances. By that time, Elvis was already the biggest star in Japan and also in Germany, and the offers from Europe were for many millions of dollars, even then. So nevertheless, the question remains, why didn't Parker use his powerful connections and celebrity status to get his passport situation fixed? And there was a statute of limitations even on entering the country illegally at that time, and Parker could have appealed for some sort of amnesty. Nash asks this question also, and she said, Why had he never registered with the U.S. government, bypassing as late as 1940 the safety net of the Alien Registration Act, which required all aliens to comply with the law, but did not discriminate between legal and illegal residents. And even if the Alien Registration Act of 1940 couldn't have made him legal, historian Marion Smith points out that as an overstayed seaman, Parker could have registered and applied for certain kinds of relief. And I am curious as to why he didn't. It's very odd. I don't know. It's a mystery. But no matter how much money was on the line for him to leave the country, nothing could get him to do it. And this considering how much the dude loved money, and especially when also considering his considerable gambling debts, which were considerably considerable, begs the question as to why not even an act of God could get Colonel Parker to leave the U.S. for any reason whatsoever. So here's where Nash gives three stories that might explain why, and I'm going to bypass the first two because they're the least plausible and coincidentally, they're also the least salacious. Uh, so here's the third most likely and the most scandalous story. 
And here, uh, Nash draws heavily on the research of Dutch journalist Dirk Valenga, who published writings um, on Colonel Parker's history for over 20 years. In 1980, Valenga received a letter from an anonymous source, and I'll read the letter here. At last, I want to say what was told to me 19 years ago about this Colonel Parker. My mother-in-law said to me, if anything comes to light about this Parker, tell them that his name is Van Kalk and that he murdered the wife of a greengrocer on the Boxtrot in Breda. This murder has never been solved, but look it up, and you will discover that he, on that very night, left for America and adopted a different name. And that is why it's so mysterious. That's why he does not want to be known. But believe me, this is the truth and nothing but the truth. It has been told to me in confidence. I have been carrying it around with me for years, and I'm glad now that I can tell you what happened. This is the truth. Thank you. So Valenga, of course, looked into this murder and confirmed that in Anna Van Van Den Enden, a 23-year-old newlywed to a potato trader named Wilhelm Van Den Enden, Oh my gosh, that's a hard name to say. Um, she had been bludgeoned to death in the kitchen of her home behind the shop that uh, that the couple owned. The crime was labeled by authorities as a murder with intention of robbery because the bedroom and bathroom had been ransacked in an apparent search for money. And the date of the murder, May 17th, 1929, coincided with Andres's sudden and mysterious disappearance. Nash points out that a careful reading of the original police report, handwritten in Dutch and numbering more than 130 pages, reveals a woefully inadequate investigation of the crime. She points out that the murder weapon was never positively identified, no background check was done on the victim, and as soon as a few witnesses reported seeing the victim's brother-in-law near the shop that morning, the police focused on him for the rest of their investigation, even detaining him as a suspect at one point. And then, even when they realized the brother-in-law angle was a dead end and released him, they never settled on anyone else as a possible suspect. Thus, it remains unsolved even to this day. Sounds like a job for Robert Stack in Unsolved Mysteries. Now, to be fair, Nash does point out that there's not a single shred of evidence to tie Andre Van Kalk to the murder of Anna Van Denenden. His name does not appear anywhere in the police report, and until the mysterious anonymous letter arrived at Valenga's newspaper 51 years after the fact, no one in Holland had spoken of his name in connection with the crime. But Nash then adds that a set of circumstances makes it impossible not to speculate that Colonel Tom Parker, in fact, may have gotten away with murder. For one, it is likely that Parker and the victim had known each other growing up, or at least crisscrossed in similar circles. They both grew up in Breda, were only three years apart in age, and they attended the same church. Parker also knew the family of the victim's husband, who not only lived just around the corner from the Van Kalk family, but also ran a cafe where Parker's dad, Adam Van Kalk, spent his Sunday afternoons. It's also possible that the greengrocer owned by the victim's husband had, under the previous ownership, employed young Andreas as a delivery boy, not to mention the fact that it was directly on his route to and from school. So the shop would have been well-known to Parker. As Nash puts it, he would have remembered that of the two doors in the front, only the middle door led inside the shop. The street on which the greengrocer was located is also the street to which Parker's mom, Maria, had moved after Adam's death. And it's very likely that Parker had been in town on the weekend of the murder because it was the Friday before Whit Sunday, 
or Pentecost, which to Catholics, uh, it's an important high church occasion accompanied, like Easter, by a longer school holiday, which made it a good time for travel and spending time with family. To which Nash adds this speculation. Surely Andreas would have come home rather than spend it alone in the dreary hostel above his Rotterdam employer's office. More than that, there are other witness reports that describe a figure who matches the Colonel Omus to a T. They describe seeing a man in a fancy costume, a dark fantasy jacket costume, who came out of the shop at the very hour the murder had been committed. Another witness reported seeing a well-dressed man in a gray-colored overcoat and fancy trousers, and I do believe a black hat. Well, yet another described seeing a man leaving the shop who wore a light yellow raincoat, and any of those outfits described by witnesses could match what Tom Parker was known to wear, particularly the yellow raincoat, since yellow was apparently Parker's favorite color and his wardrobe consisted of mostly yellow attire. But then again, raincoats are you know very commonly yellow, so maybe that one's a stretch. But the dapper suits definitely match what he was known to wear. The dude loved to wear fancy clothes. This was something that he and Elvis had in common. There's another detail, though, that makes things more mysterious, but also fuel the fire of speculation. One of the details in the police report describes how whoever had committed the murder had sprinkled pepper around the victim's body Body and then left a very thin layer of pepper on the floor going into the bathroom, as well as on the dressers and in the bedrooms and in the hall from the bedroom to the stairs and descending into the hall, which led from the shop to the kitchen. So pepper scattered everywhere. Uh, that might be a head scratcher until you realize that someone who had worked with the training of dogs would know that the police used German shepherds in tracking criminals, even in Holland in 1929, and would have known that a snout full of pepper would have prevented the police dogs from picking up a scent. Nash describes some other details in her book that I won't get into here because uh, this is a rock history podcast and not a true crime podcast. But in the end, there's no way of knowing if Andreas van Kalk really killed Anna van den Enden or not. Seeking to escape a dark deed in a sordid past would certainly help describe his not wanting to leave the country under any circumstances, because any process seeking to obtain a passport would have included investigation into some kind of you know, in his, his, his background, which Tom Parker was notoriously guarded about. As I said before, the only reason so much of his real story ever came to light was due to a lawsuit that was brought against him in the 1980s, which basically forced a lot of his story to come out in court and by extension in the newspapers. And Nash, of course, likewise acknowledges that there's no way to know for sure, but she does ask some provocative questions and speculation, such as, if Andre Van Kalk had indeed visited the shop on the morning of May 17th, 1929, had he merely meant to rob Anna, to knock her cold and steal money to return to America? Was that the money Andre left behind in the trunk? Had he been too scared to change the guilders to dollars after things had gone so wrong? Once inside the building, the intruder had locked the door between the shop and the living quarters. Had he not expected to find anyone there, and his husband was out with his cart making deliveries, and panicked when he saw her? The police report does describe that while she had been struck with enough force to kill her, whoever had done it had apparently then tried to bind her wounds with a piece of material torn from clothing found in the hall. Basically, it looked like someone had tried to knock her out, but hit her too hard, and then desperately tried to save her only to realize there was nothing they could do. There are differing accounts from people who knew Colonel Tom Parker as to whether he was even capable of such an act. One acquaintance said, I really don't think there was a murder in him. He was a noisy character, but I don't think there was any brute force within his psyche at all. But on the other hand, a member of Elvis's inner circle, known as the Memphis Mafia, said, I don't think there's any doubt that he killed that woman. He had a terrible temper. He and I got into some violent, violent fights. We fought all the time. When we started arguing, people would get up and leave the table. 
everybody was just a nervous wreck. Byron Raphael himself has a somewhat more measured take on the question. He said, I never saw him hit anybody other than to shove his assistant Tom Diskin one time, but he did have a violent temper and a terrible mean streak, and it took very little to set him off. In those fits of rage, he was a very dangerous man, and he certainly appeared capable of killing. He would be nice one second and stare off like he was lost, and then boom, tremendous force. He'd just snap. You never saw it coming. Then five minutes later, he'd be so gentle, telling a nice soft story. So again, we're left scratching our heads. But for those who would like to explore this further, you can, of course, pick up a copy of Elena Nash's book. Or you can also listen to the podcast Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, episode 99, entitled Colonel Tom Parker vs. Murder. Um, those guys do a really great job of telling the whole story, um, and they're very entertaining. So I, I highly recommend you check them out. But all right. Uh, with that being said, let's continue with our narrative of his life. Once he was back in the U.S., Parker was once again back at work as a carny, doing odd jobs for whatever circus would take him, uh, working his way up the ladder, learning the trade, making connections, and more fully inventing the Tom Parker we all know today. In that vein, he was likewise perfecting his most important skill for which he is most famously known, and that is, of course, the snow job, a.k.a. the art of the con. Nash goes into a great amount of detail here about his life, and she even addresses some questions about Parker's military service. However, I am likewise going to skip over those. His time in the military was short-lived and ended in desertion. And I am going to plop us about 10 years later in his life story. In 1938, he was running a penny arcade for a carnival company based out of Tampa, Florida, called the Royal American Shows, that sold picture cards of movie stars, cowboys, and sports heroes in these um, sliding slot machines for one cent apiece. And by now, he had been married for three years to his first wife, Marie Mott whose son, Bobby, I mentioned earlier in this podcast as having died, never knowing the true origins of his stepfather. It was at this time in 1938 that Parker would uh, be first begin his foray into the sort of talent management that would put him on the road to Elvis. Um, so Gene Austin at this time was a 38-year-old washed-up former star whose heyday in the 1920s had disappeared not only in the Great Depression, but also due to his profligate lifestyle and heavy drinking. Gene Austin is often regarded as the first crooner, having paved the way for Bing Crosby and others who followed in his footsteps. When whipper will call And evening is nigh I hurry to my Blue heaven 1938 saw Austin struggling to hold on to a waning fame while slowly losing his singing voice to throat problems, which were a result of his heavy drinking. And when the former star crossed paths with Tom Parker, he was working the theater circuit trying to promote his first and only Western film, Songs and Saddles. Let me sing my song of the saddle. The song my saddle sings to me. Coming into contact with a living legend, I mean, it has been, yes, but still a legend, Parker exaggerated his skills and background as a press agent and promoter using his carefully honed sales skills to convince Austin to hire him. Even though Austin told Parker that he didn't need his skills at that time, he was about to headline a tour of the Starorama Canvas Theater, which was a, ta uh, which was a traveling talent show that crisscrossed the rural south in large trucks. 
It was during this tour that Austin decided to reach out to Parker. They met up in Atlanta with Parker's wife and stepson in tow, and Parker was hired to help Austin's current manager at that time, Jack Garns, with setting up bookings and promoting the tent show. Parker took to his new gig with a vengeance. Gene Austin had never had a promoter like Tom Parker. There was hardly a square inch in each town the show was scheduled to visit that wasn't covered in a poster or a flyer advertising the upcoming show. Not only that, but Parker also began ingratiating himself with Austin, slowly edging out Garns in a move that Parker would do time and time again as he consistently made himself the one indispensable component of any of the talent he would manage throughout his career. The show um, did better than ever through Parker's efforts, but it was still more or less limping along. Austin owed an inordinate amount of back taxes, which forced Parker to get creative in how to keep the show profitable. And this was never known to the public, of course. If they ever stayed in a hotel where they still owed some money by the end of their stay, Parker would hang up banners that said, Held over by popular demand! And then they would stay in that town until the bell was paid. He also channeled his con man vibes uh, to pinch pennies wherever he could in a, in a move that he would repeat uh, often during his time as Elvis's manager. He would have Gene Austin write a ton of blank checks. And then whenever he went uh, you know, around town to purchase items that they needed... He would talk about what an amazing privilege it was to work for the legendary Gene Austin. And then, handing over the check to pay for the goods, he would mention, you know, that's a real autograph there. You might want to hang that on the wall. And so, of course, each store owner who took his suggestion meant another check that was never cashed. Thus, free stuff. Nevertheless, despite all these efforts, the show was continuing on only through borrowed time and a fading impetus from Austin's past fame. Parker supplemented his income through other odd jobs, including even working for the Humane Society, actually. Um, By 1941, he had moved past Gene Austin and was now looking at doing concert promotion for country and western music. And living once again in Florida, he and a couple of partners rented a National Guard armory and put on a show starring Roy Acuff and comedian Minnie Pearl. In later years, Pearl would reminisce how shrewd a businessman Parker had been even then. The way he'd promoted hers and Acuff's show was uh, through lining up a promotion with a local grocery store chain in which they would sell discount tickets with a newspaper coupon. So in the end, the store paid for the advertising and every grocery cashier in a three-county area functioned as box office workers. They were able to draw enough of a crowd to fill the house for several performances. From these shows, Parker almost became the manager for Roy Acuff himself. However, when Parker insisted that the smart business move would be for Acuff to leave the Grand Ole Opry for more lucrative appearances, the deal died. Acuff was just too married to the Opry. I wish I knew how to quit you. Nevertheless, Parker was making a name for himself as a promoter within the country and western music circuit. And he had also parted ways with Acuff uh, with a valuable piece of advice from the singer. And this was that Parker should keep his eye on the then up-and-coming Eddie Arnold. The cattle are prowling, the coyotes are howling, we out where the dog is Whispers are So Parker spent the next four years doing promotions for all sorts of country and western stars, including Pee Wee King and Ernest Tubb, and made numerous connections with Eddie Arnold, until finally in 1945 he was at last able to seal the deal and become Arnold's manager. This time that Parker was a manager for Eddie Arnold would be a crucial stepping stone for the colonel as a talent manager, and would especially prove fruitful down the road when he would someday take over as Elvis's manager. It was during this time that Parker would make his first true in roads with RCA Victor, which is something that's important to remember. 
Um, he had done this, uh, you know, having had some brushes with them during his time as Gene Austin's manager. But now he was working directly with people at the record company, particularly Steve Scholes, who was the head of their country and R&B divisions, which honestly, it, it could have been just called like their everything that isn't mainstream pop division, because that's usually how the record companies worked. They'd have, you know, a bunch of people working for their mainstream pop division and then like anything that wasn't that was all just kind of put under the same head it's during his time assembling arnold's team in tandem with rca's people that nash makes this important point in her narrative eventually parker would bring all the players to the group that would later figure so heavily in taking elvis to the top nearly every major career move he guided for arnold a string of chart-topping records, the judicious use of early television, and even engagements in Las Vegas, served as the blueprint for Parker's plan with Elvis. So he was laying the groundwork right now. Uh, I mean, he may not have known it, but but essentially, this is where he was cutting his teeth. Um, you know, forming the, the the business acumen that he would eventually use with um, his time with Elvis. Another shrewd business decision Parker would make at this time was in the way that he kept his talent as isolated from the record company as possible. This way, he made himself indispensable to both parties. You know, the last thing any manager wants is for the talent or the record company to cut out the middleman, right? He also made sure that everyone uh, saw him as a figure of equal or greater stature to his artist. So Nash gives this example. In magazine and newspaper advertisements, Parker coupled his name with that of Eddie's under exclusive management of Thomas A. Parker in letters nearly the same size as those employed for Arnold's. This was, of course, not only to convey the idea that he and Arnold were indeed a team, but also to advertise to the world that Parker was a deal maker worth noticing and by extension, making deals with. Another important event that took place during his time as Arnold's manager was Parker's quote-unquote promotion to Colonel. So up to this point, he had insisted that members of Arnold's band call him Popsy, which Nash somewhat cynically says was a feigned intimacy designed to wheedle favors out of them. But then during a trip with uh, fellow manager and talent scout Gabe Tucker to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Parker called on an old, an old Carney acquaintance named Bob Greer, who was at that time an aide to Louisiana Governor Jimmy Davis, who himself actually had had some fame in his younger years as a country singer with the song "You Are My Sunshine." As Parker was, you know, reminiscing in in sharing his snow job exploits with Greer, who was cut from the same cloth as Parker. Tucker, who was soaking in the whole exchange, commented that anyone who could snow with such velocity should have a title and put the request to Greer. Parker was, of course, thrilled at the whole idea and refused to leave town until he, through Greer, was able to finagle a document out of the governor that commissioned him as a Louisiana colonel with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities thereunto appertaining. Although I'm sure, you know, knowing Parker, he, he probably liked having the rights and privileges, but none of the responsibilities. Uh, but anyway, after that, he insisted that everyone address him as colonel. And as Nash puts it, the former army deserter now carried what many construed as a military title. One more point to make about the colonel's time as Arnold's manager comes from the perspective of Arnold's bandmates. They saw Parker as dictatorial and he in turn treated them as little better than a necessary evil. He stripped Arnold's band of their share of the songbook sales. You know, remember this is the 1940s while sheet music still reigned supreme. And also, according to Nash, delighted in stirring up trouble among the band members who, before his arrival, had enjoyed an easy camaraderie. Since they never seemed to have an argument when he wasn't around, 
Eventually, they recognized it as a control mechanism. And one of them even commented on how Parker loved it when all of us would run to him so he could be the great fixer. And that the internal bickering gave Parker a window onto everything that went on with his star. So the dude basically stirred up trouble in order to, to kind of create divisions within everyone, but um, make himself, again, this sort of key component, the, the indispensable figure for all of them. They all have to come to him, and he's the one that's, that's holding it all together, even though he's really the one <laughs> splitting it all apart at the same time. <laughs> um, Parker was Eddie Arnold's manager until 1953 when Arnold fired him, actually, over frustrations with Parker's growing involvement with other talent particularly a guy named Hank Snow. Because Arnold believed the 25% that he paid Parker was for exclusivity, the fact that Parker had started booking appearances for Hank Snow behind Arnold's back was, in Arnold's mind, not only duplicitous, but also meant that Parker's focus was split. And that was where the colonel was at in his life on that night that he attended the show at the Eagle's Nest with the Baron of the Box Office, Oscar Davis, assessing the young Elvis Presley from afar. And that's where we're going to leave off in his story, is where we are reconnecting him with Elvis' story. And next episode, we will um, pick up where we had left, left off with Elvis, where he had just first encountered the colonel, and continue on from there. So, uh, as usual, folks, maybe keep it deep. Himself a legend, a showbiz pro with an old-time carny man's flair for bringing them into the tent. Colonel Tom Parker saw Elvis Presley for what he could be, and as his personal manager, launched him on the royal road to stardom. It is generally conceded, uh, Colonel Parker, and to those who don't know it, let's tell them right now that Elvis's success was part Elvis, part Colonel Parker. Which part was yours? Because that was the less vis visible part. I think mine was the least part. I, I did all the promotion, and he did the show on the stage, and the fans made it possible. You could promote all you want to, but if the people don't want to buy a ticket, it doesn't help.